Welcome to Community Bible Church. Come on in and grab a seat. We're so glad to see all of you this morning, ready to worship the Lord together, learn from his word together as a church. I hope you all had a great week, and I'm excited to uh, worship and learn together with you. We're going to start our service with two songs this morning, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, and we'll go into um, How Great Thou Art. So if you would stand, we'll sing together, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Reigns 
Our Father, we bow our heads before you as an expression of bowing our lives before you. Because we say with the psalmist, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. We acknowledge you as our Lord, our Master, because you are our Creator. Before we ever knew you as Savior, as creatures, we knew you as the one who made us. And though the heavens declare your glory and it's seen throughout all you have made, sin causes us to be in denial. We suppress the truth and are without excuse because what may be known about you is plain to every person, being understood by what has been made. We only bow willingly before you today because you have changed us. At a point in time, when we heard the gospel message, you opened our eyes and our ears to see you for who you truly are and to receive your word for what it truly is. And now, because we are saved, we've been delivered, rescued from our sin. We say with the hymn writer, heaven above is softer blue, earth around sweeter green, Not something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. You, our maker, have become our father and we, your children, the people of your pasture and the flock under your care. And so, Father, today we come to celebrate you as our creator and our savior and our sovereign Lord, before whom we gladly bow and give our lives. We ask that you receive the worship of your grateful creatures and now children, for it's offered to you and you alone. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you, and please be seated. Well, as Anthony said earlier, welcome everyone. We're glad that you could come and worship the Lord together with us this morning. And we want to especially welcome any of you who are our guests this morning. If it's your first time with us here at CBC, we want to say thank you for being with us, and we'd like to make it simple for you to learn more about CBC or let us know anything you need help with. And so as you see on the screen there, we've got a connection card online that you can get access to by texting the word CBC Connect to the number 97000, and you'll get a link back there to our, a shortcut to our connection card as well as some other links to things that I'm going to mention here in our announcements this morning. And I'll just remind you that uh, there's much going on at CBC now as we uh, head into the fall and gear up for the new school year. And all of the things that are going on at CBC are available uh, on our website on the calendar there. So if you have, uh, have a chance to take a look this week, make sure you know what's coming up on the CBC calendar. And I'm just going to highlight a few of those things for us this morning. The first of which is, I want to say, did everybody sleep well last night? Did you have a good morning? Yeah, good. I see heads nodding. That's good. We're starting earlier next week. I just want to remind you, this was your last chance to get here at 10 o'clock and be on time. So next week, we go back to our original, our new old service time. So our worship service starts at 930 in the morning, and then we'll have our Discovering God, our second hour, resuming again uh, starting next week, and that begins at 1115. And uh, Pastor Ken, I'm sure, will have more to say about that as we'll be starting some new things with that. Um, and then I just want to remind all of our members this afternoon, we have our family meeting on Zoom. That's at 1.30 this afternoon. And uh, you should have received a link in your email yesterday about that. If you didn't, use that CBC Connect to 97,000 to connect with us and let us know this afternoon, and we'll get that link to you. 
And uh, so 1.30 this afternoon is our church family meeting for all of our members. And then uh, two things for Crossroads, just want to remind you that are coming up in the near future, uh, because one of them especially requires registration. So there's an Issues in Focus conference. It's uh, a conference designed for young adults and has to do with apologetics type uh, topics, uh, specifically this year focusing on ethics. And so check out our website to register for that, and uh, all the details are there. And as well, the next day there's a bonfire for the Crossroads group, and that will be at the Banks House. And then I want to remind everyone that for four weeks, beginning in August, on August 15th, we'll have something special in our Discovering God, our second hour, and that is our newcomer's orientation. And that's for anybody who has never been to it before. If you're relatively new to CBC and you've not attended newcomer's orientation, it's designed to help you learn more about CBC. And uh, uh, it's not required after you go to this that you join, but it's a class that you would take in preparation if you're thinking about joining CBC as a member. So mark your calendars for that. And then as well, on August 20th, we reserve tickets for the Mud Hens game in Toledo. Fun time every year, just reminding you that tickets are $15 for that, and you can buy those tickets on our church website. So just go to cbctrenton.com, click the banner there for Mud Hens, and you'll see all the details. And then we have something new that we haven't mentioned yet coming up, and that is our 2021 marriage retreat. We're going to be going to Gull Lake Christian Conference Center for Friday and Saturday, September 10th and 11th. And this retreat includes dinner, breakfast, and lunch the next day, and all the sessions as well. We're going to have our guest speaker there, Rick Thomas, uh, who's uh, got a very powerful personal testimony. We've been helped by him in the past. He was a speaker at a previous uh, similar conference for us. And so I encourage you to take a look at our website to read more about that. And any, any one of our couples, married uh, folks at CBC, we encourage you to consider registering and attending this. And then uh, one thing that I don't have a slide for, but I just wanted to mention, you all would have received probably about a week and a half ago an email uh, letting you know that we have every year a fall outreach event called the Enchanted Trail. It's a great event, and I've had people in the past say, you know, I think I'd like to do something to help with that, but I don't know how to get involved. So we sent an email out with a link to our volunteer form. So you can click on that. If you don't have that, you can guess how to get a, a link to it. Text us at uh, CBC Connect at 97,000 and let us know you want to know more about the Enchanted Trail. We'll send that link over to you. And then uh, I think that does it for announcements uh, this week. want to just remind our church family, as I do every week, that the ministry here at CBC continues to thrive and we press forward in the mission God's given us because of the generosity of God's people in giving of their time as well as financial resources. And uh, this is a part of a service where I remind us that all that we have comes from the Lord, and uh, we, each week, as members of CBC, lay aside a portion of that to devote to the ministry here. And uh, as I mentioned earlier about guests, we're glad you're here, and I want to highlight as I talk about giving that we didn't ask you to come to ask you for money. Uh, instead, in fact, if you're our guest for the first time, we have a gift for you. I'd encourage you as a guest, stop by our welcome desk that's just outside these doors in Cafe Community. Let them know it's your first time, and they have a little gift to give you to say thank you for being with us. But for us members here who have joined together at CBC, um, each week we give to the, to the Lord's work here, and there are a couple ways you can do that. You can give online, uh, either on our church website, just click the giving link and follow the instructions. Our church app called Church Center has a giving link in the main menu at the bottom of the screen, as well as some donation boxes, one by the welcome desk and one outside the office doors that's available all week long. 
We're going to look now at God's Word, and our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 13. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now let's stand together and continue singing praise to the Lord as we sing Jesus Messiah.
Jesus Messiah.
You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14, Proverbs 14. And right now our teens, that is junior high, those going into sixth grade starting this fall and through senior high can be dismissed to their classes. This is the final week that they're going to be doing that because as Pastor Larry mentioned, starting next Sunday we revert to our pre-COVID schedule, worship at 9.30 and then Sunday school at 11. So at that time, during that second hour, the teens and really all ages are going to have their own classes next Sunday. This morning, we continue our series in the book of Proverbs, and we are almost finished. In fact, we have just two more messages after today, and then we're going to move to a mini-series on the gospel, primarily from the book of Romans, just five messages on the central tenets of the, the gospel. Then on September the 19th, we'll begin a series through the book of Acts. In recent weeks, we've looked at what Proverbs says about various topics, such as the way we communicate, the need to practice discernment, the necessity of dealing with our past, and anger at work, friendships, money, honesty in our speech last week, and now today, how we relate to government. Proverbs has much to say about government and leaders and people following their leaders. Because one audience for the teaching in Proverbs was the future leaders of Israel. When Solomon addressed his son throughout the introduction to Proverbs in chapters 1 through 9, there you have a a king who's preparing, in effect, a prince. But as we've seen, the scope is not limited to just his son, but all potential leaders and really all people, men and women in Israel, all of whom need to display wisdom throughout the life of the nation. So government and its officials and its subjects are frequent topics in Proverbs. That's what we're going to see today. Let's bow now and ask God to help us then. Father, we thank you again for gathering us, and it is you who have gathered us because you are in control of the circumstances of our lives, And it is you who has created a desire within us because of your abiding Holy Spirit to desire to be here, to be among your people, to sing praise to you, and now to learn of you from your word. Help us to do that by quieting our hearts, focusing our minds. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we provide an outline for the message. You should have received that as you came uh, into the auditorium. And I say, first of all, in that outline... The problem with government is, and the first problem is those who govern. The problem with government is at least a couple of things, and the first one is those who govern. I've asked you to turn to Proverbs 14. Please look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, Wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning, and even among fools she lets herself be known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. A king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant arouses his fury. Now these three Proverbs go together as they speak of the kind of people who receive wisdom, and then what that looks like when those individuals govern, or the effect that they have on those that they govern. When verse 33 says, wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning, 
That phrase, reposes in the heart, means to be settled peacefully in a particular place. It means to settle down, to have rest, to come to rest. It's saying that wisdom finds a welcome place in the heart of some people. But the next line contrasts the welcome that wisdom receives from some with the rejection that it gets from others. When it says to fools, wisdom lets herself be known, it's saying that wisdom is presented to fools. They have access to it. But it's not internalized. They don't welcome it. They do not receive it. Now, this is similar to what we saw months ago in the second of the ten lessons of a father to his son in that introduction to Proverbs, that is chapters 1 through 9. In that second lesson, the father says this, My son, accept my words and store up my commands within you. Turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. In the first lesson, back in chapter 1, the father told his son to listen to your father's instruction. But now, in the second lesson, as we saw, this is an advance because it's now saying accept, not just listen. Accepting is an important step beyond just listening. You cannot accept if you don't listen, of course, so that has to be the beginning. But if it says, if it, if it stays simply as just listening, you will not reap the benefits of what's being taught. Accepting the wise teachings from the Father or another teacher or mentor is about internalizing what you've heard. It's about making it your own. And we saw also in chapter 8 that it says this, does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Wisdom's voice goes out from the highest point and it's heard by those going, it says, along the way. But although wisdom appeals to all, only some find it actually appealing and so accept it. And that's what we have here in verse 33 of Proverbs 14. So instead of saying, and even among fools, it's probably better, but among fools, wisdom is merely made known but not received. That's the idea. Verse 33, the idea is wisdom finds a home in the discerning, but in the midst of fools it's merely heard, not heeded. Now what does all of that have to do with government? The next verse, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Verse 34 intensif identifies the wisdom of verse 33. It identifies it now with ethics, and it escalates its concerns from individuals to the nation. The righteousness that follows wisdom means that its leaders and its people will do what is best. What's best for all, not just for themselves. And verse 34 is saying that exalts a nation. That is, generally speaking, if a nation serves the interests of others, not self, it provides political and moral leadership that results in exalted benefits like power and peace and prosperity. It means that ultimately a nation's exaltation depends on its character. 
and its resulting behavior, not on its political, military, or economic greatness. Verse 34 says, but sin condemns any people. One commentator said, in its external affairs, a sinful nation, among other things, breaks treaties, propagandizes, lies, and bullies weaker nations. In its internal affairs, it allows its judicial system to break down so that criminals and sluggards are rewarded and good citizens are overtaxed and intimidated. Now, last week in the message on honesty from Proverbs, we said in the outline but did not elaborate that honesty impacts the legal, political, and economic systems of a nation. Verse 34 is saying the character of a nation has far-reaching effects either for good or for ill. Wisdom will generally strengthen the nation's institutions, but the sin that results from foolishness will undermine them. This moral posture of a nation depends in no small measure on who leads it, on its officials. Verse 35, a king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant arouses his fury. Now the word for servant in verse 35 is used uh, in the first book of your Bible, in Genesis, of Pharaoh's chief baker, his, and also of his cupbearer and his captain of the guard. That's in Genesis 40 and 41. There have been discovered jar handles from Solomon's time that have inscribed on them the name of a royal officer with the designation, the servant of the king. So it has inscribed on it the name of this royal officer, servant of a particular king. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says the proverb in verse 35, quote, admonishes the king to promote competence loyalty and efficiency in ventures and not to tolerate mismanagement. And it also admonishes officials under the king to show themselves competent and incisive in their actions when facing threats and to be marked for promotion by not exposing themselves to scandal and criticism. Jesus taught that lesson in his parables of the ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Will you turn in your Bible just a few pages over to chapter 16? Chapter 16, beginning in verse 10. Verse 10 says, The lips of a king speak as an oracle, and his mouth does not betray justice. Honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. All the weights in the bag are of his making. Kings detest wrongdoing, verse 12. For a throne is established through righteousness. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but the wise will appease it. When a king's face brightens, it means life. His favor is like a rain cloud in spring. This is another passage that provides the qualities of good, a good governmental leader. Verse 10 speaks, he speaks wisdom as an oracle, as if God himself is speaking. In verse 11, he's honest in business transactions. He does not tilt the scales in his favor. He doesn't put his thumb on the scale, as it were. In verse 12, he's a moral, righteous person. In verse 13, he desires truth from those around him. Rather than flattery, he is not a narcissist. And he himself does not lie. He speaks truth. And in verses 14 and 15, he punishes wrongdoing 
and he rewards what is right. There are many passages in Proverbs that speak to the character of political leaders. Here's another in chapter 25. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. As the heavens are high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings are unsearchable. It's saying that a good king does not make hasty decisions. He's not carried away by passion, but rather he seeks counsel. He deliberates so that he can think through the issue and he can develop policy that's in the best interests of his constituents. When that happens, the people have confidence in his decisions. You have other passages, like chapter 29, verses 12 through 14, or chapter 31, verses 4 and 5. And so the moral posture of a nation depends in no small measure on its officials. But in our system, at least, we choose the officials. <laughs> so the problem with government is, yes, those who govern, but as I say in the outline, it is also those who are governed. Political philosopher and journalist George Will said this, the principle of representative government, which is at the heart of conservatism, is that the people do not decide, rather the people choose who will decide. And so we choose who's going to be making the decisions. And who we choose, and how we choose then, is a reflection on we, the governed. In a democracy, it has been rightly said, the people get the government they deserve. So if we put foolish people in office, it's a reflection of our own foolishness. And I have now lived long enough to see the conservative electorate degenerate to the point that we prioritize winning over principle. Now, I say the conservative electorate. I'm talking about conservatives because that's what I am and that's what I know most of you are. And I like to, when I'm speaking, address my audience, not some audience that isn't here. You all understand? I sometimes get people say, well, why don't you beat on the liberals? Because we don't have any. Why would I beat on people who aren't here? I like beating on you guys. I don't like beating at all. But really, if God's word is going to be applied, then it needs to be applied to us, right? So please understand, that's why I say that. One preacher has said, well, it's time for us to again demand morality of our political leaders. We have been obsessed with image long enough, looking at the politician's dress, mannerisms, and eloquence, and looking at personality and all the things that really don't matter in the end. It's time for us to let those things go and focus on the integrity of our leaders. We must demand of our candidates that they be moral people. Whenever someone presents themselves as a candidate for political office, we should say, show me that you are a person of integrity. Show me that I can trust you with the reins of power. Show me every other area of your life. And let's see how you've managed those parts of your life. And so let's look at your family. Has your family been made better by you, or are they worse off because of you? 
Let's look at your church. Has your church been made better or worse because of your leadership? Let me just stop there. You say a politician in church? Yeah, why not? Or let's look at your business. Did your employees thrive? Would they recommend you for greater leadership or no? Let's look at the community that you're living in. Have you worked to see that the community thrive? Or have you been indifferent to the needs of the people immediately around you? It's time for us to demand character from our political leaders. And when we find a politician who is a man or woman of character, we should get behind that person. We should thank God for such people because they do exist. They really do. Even in modern America, with its obsession over image instead of character, we still have some really good leaders in our communities and in our states and in our nation. Thank God for those. And let's get behind them and show them our support so that the world knows these are the kinds of people that we entrust with power. To everyone else, we should say, don't even bother running. So how did it get to the point that we're no longer doing that? We conservatives used to do that, believe it or not. Just after I graduated from high school, I developed a keen interest in government and in politics, partly because I thought I would go to law school and then get into politics, and that was in part due to what was happening in the country at that time. You see, that particular year, 1980, I was able to vote for the very first time, and I voted for Ronald Reagan, who defeated incumbent Jimmy Carter in a landslide. And one group credited with helping Reagan win was conservative evangelicals, and in particular, a group of which I was a literal card-carrying member, the moral majority. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Led by a pastor of a Baptist church in Virginia and the chancellor of then Liberty College, now Liberty University, Jerry Falwell Sr., not to be confused with his son, Jerry Jr., who's a disgrace to his late father's name. And I was proud to be a soldier in the cause. So much so that when I interned for a liberal U.S. senator the summer after my first year of college, that's, that was Michigan Senator Don Regal, again, for those of you that are old enough, I would go to the office and I felt a keen sense of disdain for my misguided, the other misguided liberals there. Now many, and I believe most, of those involved in the rise of the so-called religious right and the moral majority were honorable people. And they led a movement to overturn abortion and restore decency to society that I thought was a noble cause indeed. But power turned out not to be the panacea that many of us thought it would be. Abortion was an animating issue. And with every presidential election thereafter, after Reagan, we have been sure that this president's going to appoint justices that is going to overturn it at the Supreme Court. But Reagan got three appointments in his eight years. Only one, the late Antonin Scalia, turned out to be the kind of conservative jurist we thought we were getting when Reagan was elected. His successor, George H.W. Bush, Bush one, appointed two more, but only one, Clarence Thomas, was similar to Scalia. Eight years after 
Bush one's term, his son, George W. Bush, was elected and then re-elected. He appointed two justices, but not many are pleased with Samuel Alito, and certainly not Chief Justice John Roberts. And former President Trump had three vacancies in just four years. And to his credit, in my mind at least, he appointed what everyone thought was a trio of Scalia's and Thomas's, and that may yet turn out to be true, but so far the decisions of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett have not universally satisfied conservatives either. Now it appears that the sitting court right now in their next term is going to have another opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade next year, and I think there's a good chance they will. But what that's going to do is return the issue to the states to be voted on state by state. So in some places it would be legal, others not, unless Congress makes, makes it legal across the country, which I think is doubtful. It's not clear that all of this will be a winning hand for conservatives in the long haul, at least politically, time will tell. But standing on principle should be more important than winning anyway, as we will be reminded. So not only has political power been disappointing for Christian conservatives, it's also been corrupting. Disappointing and also corrupting. You see, even though abortion is still, 40 years after Reagan was elected, it's still the law of the land, and in the meantime, we've seen further erosions of the moral fabric of society that government seems either unwilling or unable to address. For many Christians, the draw of political power has been too much to resist. And pastors and religious leaders have been simply giddy to be in proximity to that power. The late Billy Graham served as an advisor to presidents going all the way back to Harry Truman, and then all the way through Barack Obama. So that's Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Ford and Carter and Reagan and Bush one and Clinton and Bush two and then Obama. Twelve presidents. Amazing. But even Billy Graham, who to his credit spent a seven-year decade career in ministry, and as far as I know, was scandal-free, he was caught on those infamous tapes that forced Nixon to resign. And Graham is clearly, in the most charitable interpretation of what he says on those tapes, he's just going along with Nixon on things that should be disagreeable to a Christian, things like anti-Semitism. One article said this about it. These repellent remarks by Graham can be read as Graham's effort to curry favor with Nixon by feeding his darker impulses. That tells us much about the willingness, even eagerness, of a spiritual guide to preserve his access to temporal power. Had Graham chastised Nixon for such views, or even declined to endorse them, it might have made him more of a spiritual shepherd, but lessened Graham's access to the internal inner circles of power. The willingness of religious leaders, not just Graham, to ingratiate themselves to political leaders did not go unnoticed in the White House. An article in Time Magazine several years ago said this, in, the days, in his days as a notorious hatchet man for President Richard Nixon, before Jesus transformed his life, 
Chuck Colson used to oversee outreach to the religious community. Colson said, I arranged special briefings in the Roosevelt Room for religious leaders, ushering wide-eyed denominational leaders into the Oval Office for private sessions with the president. Of all the groups I dealt with, I found religious leaders the most naive about politics. Maybe that's because so many come from sheltered backgrounds. Or perhaps it was the result of a mistaken perception of the demands of Christian courtesy. Or, he says, most worrisome of all, they may simply like to be around power. And I began to see that as a young man. And the Lord used it to direct me to a different path. The desire to be close to secular power can result in compromises that we come to regret and that's what began to happen. A movement that called itself the moral majority started to care less about the moral and more about being the majority. In state houses, in the houses of Congress, and in the White House. And in order to achieve that, we've been willing to sacrifice principle for political expediency. Consider this. When Reagan was elected in 1980, it was an issue in the campaign that Reagan had been divorced. Even though that divorce had happened decades earlier. And that's because, as far as I know, and certainly not in recent memory, had we ever had a divorced president. And family values were important in an elected official. Now we know that some like Kennedy were philanderers but they felt they had to hide it because it was unacceptable to the populace. In 2016, we elected a thrice-married man, and the issue was never even raised. So what happened? Well, part of it was the Democrats were so bad <laughs> with Bill Clinton and all of his escapades that we could say, in effect, we're no worse than they are. But that's quite a step down, is it not, for those of us who used to believe that we needed to be better, not just not as bad as? When Clinton had an affair with Monica Lewinsky, the outcry from our side was rightly one of condemnation. Some of you may remember the name William Bennett, Bill Bennett. He was a conservative leader. He, he cared so much about public morality, he wrote his massive, I have a copy of it, it's called The Book of Virtues. And when the Lewinsky scandal happened and Clinton remained in the White House anyway, he wrote a book called The Death of Outrage. That is, isn't anybody outraged at immorality anymore? But outrage appears now to be dead on all sides. The president most of us voted for signed checks while president as payoff to porn stars to keep their affairs silent. And we heard next to nothing from the conservative commentariat. Over time, the conservative movement began to show that the family values, a phrase that many campaigned on in the 80s and into the 2000s, was for too many just a campaign slogan. 
And the voices of the conservative world reflected the depths to which we had fallen. You guys remember Bill O'Reilly? Number one show on cable television for years. And he had that number one program, and he castigated the, what he called the secular progressives on his show regularly, to the delight of people like me, until he was caught having phone sex with employees and having settled several issues of sexual harassment filed by colleagues at Fox News. Roger Ailes, who made Fox News into the giant that it became, was disgraced for sexual harassment of his subordinates. Rush Limbaugh, married four times, but remained king of conservative radio until he died last year. Newt Gingrich had an affair while his wife was deathly ill, divorced her, and remarried. And none other than the Book of Virtues and Death of Outrage author, William Bennett, was outed for having a gambling problem. Remember I mentioned Jerry Falwell Jr. and the disgrace he is to his father's name? If you haven't seen the stories about him, take my word for it, he's a mess. The list could go on and on, friends. But we've tolerated it for the sake of winning, politically. And as a result, in our politics today, character matters little. But see, friends, as we've seen in God's words, God's word, it's a paramount importance. So I say this not to take shots at a particular person or persons. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about us and what we look for and what we tolerate and what we overlook when God says, this is what you're supposed to look for. I began to hear over the last five, six years or so, hey, I'm not electing a pastor. I don't care if he's a choir boy. And just with a sweep, a rhetorical sweep like that, we can dismiss character as an issue. The problem with government includes we, the governed, and those who govern. So I say in your outline, the solution to government is new citizens. Let's stop placing our hope in politics and politicians, friends. And let's refocus our attention on the mission of Jesus Christ. The politicians and the politics have failed us, failed me. So let's focus on the mission of Jesus Christ. And that mission of Jesus Christ, remember, is making new people. What we need are changed citizens. Because it's the citizenry that's reflected in those who govern. We need better citizens. And you get better citizens by the gospel of Jesus. So I say to you, as I say to myself, 2022 is another midterm election, 2024, another presidential election, 
This will be the most pre important presidential election in your lifetime. I assure you we'll be told that over and over again. And we'll be scared to death about who's going to occupy the White House. And I will tell you, friends, I'm not worried in the least about who occupies the White House. What I care about, what we need to care about, is who occupies the throne in heaven. And we need to return our focus to that. The solution to government is new people, new citizens, which in turn will provide, what I say in your outline, new leaders. We must have a revival of the citizenry if those citizens are to demand godly people to represent them. Now, two of the men who helped Jerry Falwell Sr. found the moral majority in the late 70s were Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson, no relation to focus on the family's James Dobson. But about 20 years later, they co-authored a book called Blinded by Might. I read it years ago, and it resonated with my own experience. The advertisement of the book says, Thomas and Dobson once believed the best way to fight the liberal agenda was to beat them at their own game, mobilize voters, organize boycotts, get invited to the White House, raise a ton of money to keep the war chest full. Not anymore. Blinded by Might takes you inside the early and heady days of the moral majority, tracing its well-intentioned but fatally flawed battle plan aimed at reversing America's slide into a moral wasteland. It shows how groups like the Christian Coalition, which stepped in when the moral majority ran out of steam, have not changed, cannot change, and will not change the trajectory of America's culture. Written by two conservative Christians who worked closely with Jerry Falwell in the 80s, Blinded by Might explains what you can do for your country that 20 years of heavily financed political activism has failed to do. When Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan won the 1980 presidential election by a landslide, conservative Christians discovered what could happen when they flexed their electoral muscles. Suddenly, faith and politics seemed a promising match, and before the eyes of the astonished media, a new movement called the Moral Majority and its leader, Jerry Falwell, rocketed from obscurity to national prominence. The religious right was born. Yet despite nearly 20 years of vigorous and sophisticated activism, it has failed in its mission to end abortion, eliminate pornography, restore the shattered American family, and usher in a better world built on, quote, traditional values. Why? Few know better than Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson, former insiders with the moral majority. And in their book, they share never reported information on a movement that helped shape, that they helped shape in order to show why it could not and did not succeed. And they tell what it will really take to stem the ungodliness that is sweeping our nation. And here it is. Whenever the church cozies up to political power, it loses sight of its all-important mission to change the world from the inside out, writes Thomas. In blurring the lines between politics and Christianity, the religious right has traded the only power that can truly change America the gospel's power to transform hearts. We've traded that for the methods of a kingdom that is of this world. What then is the alternative? Given such critical issues as abortion, 
and the homosexual agenda, are Christians simply to disengage from the political process? Hardly. Uninvolvement is not the answer, say the authors, but rather a shift in perspective. As Christians, they insist we must realize that God's agenda does not rise or fall with political causes, and that we must rediscover our most potent influence is not the ballot box, but rather lives that extend God's grace in the home, in the workplace, and in all spheres of our culture. Blinded by Might calls us to realign ourselves with a kingdom infinitely more powerful and certain than politics that advances initially through changed hearts and then inevitably must change and shape government. Friends, I call you to that changed perspective. Politics is not where the action is. The mission of Jesus is. The church is. The gospel is. And so I say in your take-home truth, King Jesus fixes the problem. He is the ultimate solution, both now and in the future. Let's bow together. Father, we again thank you for allowing us to meet in your presence with your people and to open your book. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us to grope in darkness about the issues we face in our day. Lord, we are concerned, we are rightly concerned about moral decay. We want to see righteous leaders occupy the state houses and the White House and the houses of Congress. So help us to be people that are informed, people who, who vote according to conscience and vote for people of moral character. Having done that, Lord, as citizens, but most importantly, as citizens of heaven. Help us to trust you. And Lord, help me and help us to not be distracted in any way from the great calling that you have upon every one of us to be your lights in darkness, to be your evangel evangelists to an unsaved world, to see people come to you and to see them transformed one by one, and Lord, we would love to be, we would love and we would praise you to see revival, spiritual revival in our land. But Lord, it begins one person at a time with the gospel, not politics. We look forward to the day that the true king will return and establish a kingdom that will never fade. In the meantime, Lord, we say from our hearts, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but we will serve you faithfully until then. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand now for our closing song. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all. And reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, 
To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you, CBC family and guests, for being with us. Have a great week serving.